A poor farmer discovered that he had a goose that laid golden eggs. Overjoyed, he hoped for riches. Every day, the goose laid a golden egg, but greed consumed him. Believing the goose held more gold, he cut it open, only to find nothing. Of all the branches of philosophy, Stoicism is the most pragmatic and actionable. It's about finding tranquility independent of circumstance by understanding and mastering what you control and letting go of what you don't. This podcast is about bridging the gap between the beautiful, concise teachings of the Stoics and everyday life. Each week, we bring quotes from the Stoics that are meaningful to us on our journey to better embody the ideals that they taught, with the hope that seeing personal struggle will be universally applicable. One of our favorite Stoics, Epictetus, brings us a wonderful quote where he compares things to a banquet. And he says, remember that you must behave as at a banquet. Is anything brought around to you? Put out your hand and take a moderate share. Does it pass you by? Do not stop it. Is it not yet come? Do not yearn and desire toward it, but wait until it reaches you. And then he extends it beyond what you do at a banquet. He extends it to what we should do in our lives. And he said, the same goes with regard to children, wife, office, riches, etc. And you will sometime or other, saying if you do it the same with all those things, at some time or other, you will become worthy to feast with the gods. So, Bruce, I wanted to ask you, what is temperance? And how can we become worthy to feast with the gods? The reason why I loved this quote and I thought it would be a good way to contextualize temperance is because it's it's talking about like the behavior that you would have at a feast, which I think is a good analogy for life where if someone's passing the rolls on Thanksgiving dinner, which I would be more guilty of this than most, <laughs> is like you wouldn't just take 10 of them off of a plate and like shove it onto your plate and then just wolf them down. You would wait for the rolls to be passed to you. You would take a moderate share. And then if it's not passed to you, and like if it's not passed to you or and you want rolls, like you're not going to go crazy over it to, to try to get it. And so it just kind of like shows in a way how we should behave towards the external things in life. The definition of temperance that I want to propose slash got off the internet is a balance between indulgence and abstinence, which the interesting take on temperance is that most of us always think about temperance as indulgence or or intemperance as indulgence. For instance, we think of excessive drinking, overeating, compulsive shopping, workaholism, social media addiction, excessive sleep, etc. And I think we all understand that as like, yeah, that that that's on the indulgent side of temperance, right? Those are things you need temperance to overcome. But on the flip side is what more, much more of what I've struggled with. <laughs> 
which is the abstinence or abstinence side where it's like you're too far on the other end of it where it's like you're being too pious or too religious or too serious or too punctual or wanting to know too much about a subject and it's just as dangerous in a different way and so today we wanted to go into a little bit more about the abstinence side of of temperance and then next week we're going to go the other direction and talk about the indulgence side. Oh, yeah. And it, we were talking earlier about these things and how we wanted to describe it. And a, kind of a funny joke we've had before is the idea of the horoscopes that it tells you your biggest weakness is you try too hard or you care too much about other people. <laughs> and kind of <laughs> the joke is that they're not really saying bad things, but things that people want to hear about themselves. And so they say, oh, they just know me so well. <laughs> and, but in this episode, <laughs> we're saying those actually are bad things, even though they're a lot easier to hear than, oh, your excessive drinking is causing a rift in your life or <laughs> your workaholism is tearing apart your family. You know, those are, those are things that everyone is against, but it's a lot easier socially to be too serious or too punctual. But the Stoics also agree that being too much of those things is also can, can be just as, just as dangerous like Bruce was saying. And so we brought a, a quick quote by Seneca just to show that he says to want to know more than is sufficient is a form of intemperance. And I like, I like how it illustrates it because that's something that most people wouldn't say is a bad thing. Oh, you want to know more? Good. You should always want to know more. And when we get into the absolutes, that's where it gets, especially gets dangerous while talking about temperance. But he's saying even wanting to know more, which is something that I think we universally applaud, is a form of intemperance. And extending that out, wanting to be too religious, wanting, me, wanting to be too philosophical even. Those are all forms of intemperance. And so we wanted to explore more how to deal with that and where to go when you find yourself in those situations. Well, yeah, let me illustrate it. So the reason why, so like being too punctual, right? So punctuality is definitely in my opinion, a virtue. <laughs> uh, but when I was in elementary school, I would have like literal nightmares about being late to school. And like, I was never late and I was never absent basically uh, by like a few minutes. But like the amount of time that I spent like nagging my parents to make sure that I was at the school at 8 a.m. was was just not worth like the the ultimate prize of like I don't know what you get in that point or or what I expected to win. And so it's like being punctual is important, but like when you want to be punctual so much that you're losing sleep for elementary school, <laughs> it's like not it, it's not a good trade-off, right? And so like with the wanting to know too much, which is another thing that like I've always it's like a way of dealing with uncertainty is just trying to understand it more deeply until you understand it perfectly. And 
you're never going to understand it perfectly. And there's definitely a point of diminishing marginal returns where it's, and for those of you that haven't taken an economics class <laughs> and are not familiar with the term diminishing marginal return, uh, it's like your first taco that you eat after you've been starving in the wilderness is amazing. And the second taco is great, but it's not quite as good as the first. And then by the 50th taco, it's like, yeah, maybe you're getting a little marginal pleasure from it, but it's like, it's diminished so much. It's not worth eating another taco. You can do the same thing with knowledge when you want to know something and you learn some big basic principles like, oh, that's really helpful. And it's like, oh, then you learn a little more and then you get down further and further until it becomes pedantic or just very specific and not useful at a certain point. And so Aristotle came up with a great way to think about virtue that we're going to borrow to to talk about temperance. And he phrased it as the golden mean. A virtue is the mean in between an excess and a deficiency. So for instance, if we were talking about like the feelings of fear and confidence on one side, the excess of confidence is rashness. And then on the other side, the deficiency of confidence is cowardice. And in the mean then is courage. And so with temperance, we're talking about pleasures and pains. And so on the far side of pleasure is self-indulgence. And on the, the other side, on the deficiency side is just complete abstinence. And then in the mean is temperance. And I go a step further with, I, I will say before I read, I, I think it was actually you, Bruce, who showed me Aristotle's golden, golden mean theory. <laughs> and I, I will say independently, I came up with my own theory called dial theory, <laughs> which is basically the same thing. <laughs> But I I add another thing in the middle where there's cowardice and rashness surrounding courage. But I would put two in the middle where there's a healthy way that somebody leans towards rashness, but they're still in the courage in the healthy middle. And then somebody who leans towards cowardice, but they stay in the middle. Uh, I don't like leaning towards cowardice, but maybe a better example would be sociality somebody's somebody who's very introverted to where it's unhealthy versus somebody who's very extroverted to where it's unhealthy there those are the extremes and in the middle there is a healthy introvert and a, and a healthy extrovert and an interesting okay i have an example and i'll tie it back into all of this but in a an excellent book that i've read called The Inner Game of Tennis. I'm a big tan tennis fan, which you guys knew. <laughs> um, and this is by W. Timothy Galway. He talks about, this guy was just a tennis coach for several years. And one day he was sitting at the courts. He worked at a club. I guess people could just go up and ask for lessons whenever they want if they were a member at a club. And so this guy came up to him and said, Hey, can you fix my backhand? It's it's been awful for years, like nobody's been able to. And I'm paraphrasing the story here, but so he says, "Okay, like let's take a look at your backhand." So he gets the guy on the court, he starts hitting him several backhands to hit, probably like 30. 
and the guy's backhand is pretty bad. <laughs> and but the whole time, uh, the the coach doesn't say anything. He just hits him thirty backhands and lets him hit them. And then he says, "Okay, what I want you to do now." is go in front of the the windows to the building. The building had big glass windows that pretty much were mirrors on the outside. And he said, I want you to look at yourself while you do 10 shadow swings. Just swing your backhand like you normally would, but just watch yourself completely while you do it. And so the guy went over to the building and starts doing his shadow swings. And as he's doing that and watching himself, he slowly starts to say things like, oh, my shoulders are so tense or my elbows are like too too attached to my body when I'm hitting. He starts just making these corrections that the coach, I'm sure, had thought of all of those but just hadn't said them. And this guy just, over the course of 10 swings, he just saw the swing get so much more fluid and natural. And so the guy finishes the 10 swings the coach tells him, okay, come back to the court. And he hits 30 more backhands. And he just said they were just head and shoulders better than it was before. And the guy just is super excited. He's like, oh, you fixed my backhand. You know, no coach has ever been able to do this. You're the best coach ever. And then the writer of the book, he says, and I'm paraphrasing once again, but he says it kind of gave him a little bit of an identity crisis where he said, why am I even a coach when people do so much better when I don't tell them what to do (laughs) and they just learn by watching themselves. And to bring this back into temperance, I want to posit to you that the, a practical way to practice temperance would be, to consistently look at yourself very carefully and accurately. And naturally, you will correct where you're going wrong in a temperance sense. And you have to do it in each of those. So back to the introvert and extrovert. Some people are just introverts. Some are just extroverts. And staying in that healthy mean, the healthy balance in the middle where there's healthy introverts and healthy extroverts, constantly being willing to look at yourself carefully and saying, okay, am I, would I be healthier being more social? And if the answer is yes, then being willing to make those adjustments and course correct to go that way. I think most of the time, most of the vices that we have are because of a lack of awareness of things in our life. So like that window that the person was watching his form and there's things that we can do that help us to understand or have a better perception of how what we're doing affects other people. And so by slowing down and, and things like meditation not that the stokes were big into meditation although they should be i mean at least one sense of the uh, of meditation they were into as far as pondering and thinking through things but like i think that's a very practical way of being able to observe how your 
your thoughts behave and which ones you're attaching to and which ones you're resisting. But then I think the other stoic practice that is pretty important is, is they would come home every day and they'd write in the journal, right? Like meditations is this reflective process of Marcus becoming more of a stoic by processing his thoughts and his actions. And I think that's one way of polishing the mirror so we can see ourselves more clearly and so we can see our form and the way that it affects other people. Because if you really ponder it, rather than just go through your life and kind of have your headstrong opinions, for me anyway, the biggest the biggest problem for me is always I put my blinders on, I zero in on something, and then that becomes like the way that I color everything. But as soon as you take the blinders off and take a step back and look, like for instance, when I was too into family time or spending time with each other and not doing media. Uh, my family was going to go see a movie for Christmas and it was some benign, stupid Christmas movie. A Hallmark. And cool. I just remember kind of arguing with, oh, I, I mean, Hallmark <laughs> is immoral. <laughs> <laughs> There's no gray eye on that one. <laughs> but <laughs> we were... It was, it was probably some Disney movie or a Pixar film or something. And uh, we were going to go watch it as a family. And I was just trying to make a stand of why we should stay at home and actually interact with each other and do all this other stuff. And seeing that now, like in my mind's eye, it becomes really clear what the issue was with that line of thinking, right? Because it was just not like the way that it affected people was negatively for a cause that wasn't worth fighting for. And what the more rational person or the more like engaged person would do is go spend time with their family and be present no matter what the activity is. How how old were you at the time? 27. Just kidding. Oh. Uh, I was like, I was like 15. Wow. Maybe. Well, I can say for myself, I definitely was not an advocate for family time or no media at the age of 15. <laughs> and still, I'm not an advocate for either. But <laughs> that that is so interesting just to see how, I, I guess, how how would you say would be a good way to be able to see that clearly in the moment rather than years later or months later, whenever you made that discovery. Cause I think we all have things where, you know, in the moment we, we all have things we look back on and we say, Oh my goodness, I was so foolish as a 15 year old, a 17 year old, 22 year old, 24 year old, or even this year as a 25 year old. But how, how do you, how do you find it in the moment and not let so much time pass before correcting it it's slowing down and taking a breath and not living so rigidly or so or like believing that you have all the answers by being kind of humble about the way that you live your life rather than because i've switched that opinion for sure in my life is instead of like assuming that i know what the correct answers is uh, I assume that I don't know everything and 
that leaves you open to to other people's opinions and and to hear it and then um yeah listening to others has been a big life lesson where it's like other people will tell you uh whether by their actions or by what they say how how it's affecting them and so just being conscientious of that and then i think self reflection is is also important um but it, it it takes it it take it takes humility like it is is the biggest piece of it is because it's not it's it's something that you think is true that isn't true <laughs> and so like if you didn't think it was true you wouldn't be acting that way and so it, it yeah it, it takes being way more humble than i think i've been accustomed to being in the past I really like the four things you brought up, the slowing down, the humility of saying I'm not always right. That one I really like because <laughs> I usually trust somebody's morality more when they say, I'm not sure if this is right, but I think it is, <laughs> than somebody who says, I know I'm right. <laughs> and then the third one was this, the self-reflection <laughs> and then listening to others. And I think there is a beauty about kind of all, all those things, what it feels like it has in common is it, it takes yourself off of a pedestal and says, Hey, we just need to check and make sure we're doing the right thing. And I like how there's something to be done by yourself and there's a way to bring others into it to be able to see your blind spots because no matter who you are, you'll always have blind spots. No matter how much you think you don't have them. Like I think I don't, <laughs> but just bringing those things in really helps to, so I, I really like the four things you came up with where they all are really conducive to taking yourself down a notch and making it more a collaborative process with yourself and others and gaining a little bit of hopefully the communal wisdom that the world has to offer. In a way, humility is the beginnings of understanding, of true understanding. And what I think is interesting, particularly with this one with temperance is like, this is not something that I have figured out this is something that I have thought of a lot about though, <laughs> of like how to become better at it. But like being in that, that mean, like in the middle of, of temperance and, and not being kind of too restricted or over striving or doing that. Like, I think it's still something that affects the people in my life and like, I've definitely improved on it and I, I see the way that it, it, it influences people, but it's just, it's interesting to kind of be in the middle of something where it's like such a ingrained way of behaving that I'm, I'm learning how to unlearn how to do it. So like a lot of the ideas from stoicism and Buddhism, the idea of non-effort of just not taking an action rather than always taking an action, like different things like that is stuff I'm learning. But what I thought was a hopeful thing from Epictetus and 
what we kind of want to to tie into this and wrap it up with is no great thing is created suddenly any more than a bunch of grapes or a fig. If you tell me that you desire a fig, I answer you that there must be time. Let it first blossom, then bear fruit, then ripen. The story of the golden egg laying goose teaches us temperance. The farmer's initial contentment turned into greed for more. Temperance teaches us how to get the golden egg without killing the goose.